0: Hello, my name's James Bagley
1: and I'm Lucy Chaw
0: and this is The World We Got This podcast from King's College London. What are the impacts of online trolling? Should we take a public health approach to online abuse? And what are governments and organisations doing to make the internet a safe space for everyone? In today's episode we explore these questions and much more with campaigner, activist and CEO, Sheyi Akiwowo. Glitch, the charity which Shay founded and now runs, works to make online spaces safe through education, advocacy and action. Shea spoke to us about her work and why the pandemic has made things even harder for those facing online abuse. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to say a big thank you for all your kind comments and feedback. I know we now have listeners around the world and it's really fantastic to hear that you're enjoying our conversations. If you haven't already, please do rate, review and subscribe. It helps us reach even more people. So on to today's episode. I started by asking Shay how her time as a delegate at the European Parliament led to the work she does today.
1: So I was elected as a young councillor when I was 23 and really wanting to kind of change the way Politics was done, decisions were being made, democracy and making sure that when we talked about representation, it was she representing people who looked like me, a young black woman from East London, where we'd always grown up believing that we were one of the poorest boroughs in the world and not really understanding why. And using politics as a vehicle to affect change. And I very much would still believe that it's an important vehicle to, to, to do that. I kind of lessened my activism and campaigning roles and picked up the kind of councillor role to do that, and that that kind of I guess opened a lot of people's eyes to wow diversity and what councillors usually look like. I think the stats back then was something like the average age and demographic of a of a UK councillor was like fifty six years old, white male, and stale. Apparently, he'd been like fifty eight, and there's been two years worth of improvements in the last like decade. So representation isn't going well. But anyway, kind of long story short. I think there was a lot of excitement about a young Black woman engaging in politics in this way. I think on reflection, there's a lot of race analysis to do about that and why there was such a kind of, like, this Black woman can speak English and she is, like, eloquent. I think there's a lot around that that needs to be, like, analysed. But that did create this phenomenon and it used that media attention to talk about and encourage more women to get into politics and to join like local initiatives and to help change the game and understand the game of, of it all and um, part of that was being invited to the European Parliament to talk about bettering youth engagement, activities and um my role was saying who is the youth who are the youth so I was talking very much about issues of diversity and uh intersectionality at a, at a very young age and this was pre the kind of wave and re and the resurgence of um Black Lives Matter at the time at the European Parliament there was a special emergency panel being held to discuss the refugee crisis and that was when it was its real peak. Like. When we saw the Daily Mail have um, photos and uh, headlines about the issue, like when the Daily Mail are talking about the refugee crisis, then that's how you know that it's seriously a matter of gushing in the main in the mainstream. And um, anyway, this panelist was speaking, and it was a Syrian refugee who was being so honest and raw about his experience and navigating Europe and how he's so. Grateful to be in another country in Europe and work on, working on working uh, on his masters, but he hadn't seen his family and he was, he was just basically trying to use his lived experience to provide a more human context to this refugee crisis that was being banded in the headlines. And it was met sadly with the French national who was in the European hemicycle, which I've seen on TV and heard about at school during A level politics. But I was in here, so honored, if you like. So also navigating it being one of the only black women in, like with hundreds of people in this room, navigating all of that and, and wanting to hear this person's story because I never heard it before. So, like, you've you read, we've read about, about Anne Frank, but you know, in real time, I was like, silenced. I was like, I couldn't believe this was happening on our watch. We had learned about the Bosnian crisis. We had learned about uh, civil, uh, civil wars. And I was like, this is a massive crisis on our hands. and it, it, I can't believe it's not being discussed in these nuanced ways. And anyway, his speech and amazing intervention was then disrupted by the French national who were booing and heckling. And it was really disruptive because there was translation going on in the hemicycle. So you'd hear it in English and you'd hear it in French and and other, other languages spoken in the EU. And there'd just be this constant wave of booing and stuff like that and then counter booing. And it was just a massive distraction taken away from this Syrian refugee and the chair of the panelists and MEP tried very hard to kind of bring order and stuff like that. And it was time for the audience to ask questions. So I put my hand up in some kind of point of order style, which I kind of attribute to my my learnings of the council around how to to get my hat to get my point across. But I basically made an impromptu speech. I didn't know what I was going to say, but I talked about colonialism. I talked about the work and the, the, the effects and the horrible trauma that we're still living from the empire. And that means the reflection point around why we have the refugee crisis in the first place, not booing one refugee who is telling their story That video was put online a bit later on. It went viral and it was fine at first, like massively like supportive people like, yes, Black Girl Magic. And that was really nice. Like I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to become an influencer. I'm going to get a (laughs) blue tick on Twitter. Ellen's going to invite me onto her show. Like this is pre-pandemic. So really remember like the opportunities here were golden. It was getting sent like weave and like hair products and like food. And like working with like that's that was like my prism of a 24 24 year old and none of that happened. <laughs> what did happen was somebody posted it on a neo Nazi uh, forum to kind of start uh, what we now call cyber mob um, harassment and trolled my YouTube account, which this had been posted on, was trolling on Facebook and on on and on Twitter, and uh, it was it was relentless. It was it was a it was like it was just one one I think well. It was later discovered that it was on some kind of forum, but it was that one act of posting and that mob-style um, attack that just basically meant that February twenty, what was it, twenty seventeen, was a blur. I was in activist mode, campaigning mode, hurt mode, trauma mode, trying to fight services for services, actually trying to fight for services and justice by myself as a black woman in response to what was happening having to engage with with the police which I can say is a very privileged thing for me to be able to do because many people in my community and of my gender can't do that right and of minoritized genders as well but being a counselor afforded me opportunities so I was constantly in these two states of mind me individual survivor like survivor wanting to like get justice and get like to some extent revenge, like I wanted people to be like thrown into jail and I wanted, I so I, it was about my individual justice but then also this kind of balcony, balcony moment, seeing how it was a lot easier, still really hard but a lot easier for me to navigate institutions and systems, like I had an MP who was willing to write to Google and YouTube on my behalf for me, I had a relationship, I had a platform being a counsellor and the story going viral and speaking on ITV News about my story, allowed Then I then forced Twitter to respond to me. So I knew I was in a relatively privileged position, but still feeling very much like an oppressed person in the system. And that's what basically that frustration, the double frustration. So having to go through all of this in the aftermath and have Twitter respond to say there's been no violations on their platform or just to be quiet was really infuriating, but also just infuriating around how hard it was to get justice. So that's why I started the campaign Fix the Glitch. I'm a believer of the internet. Many people don't think that because they think I'm just a naysayer, but I'm not. I love the internet and I love what it allows us to do. We've seen what it's allowed us to do over the last 13 months, being in lockdown. And there are these glitches that are growing now. I probably wouldn't call glitch mm-hmm. a glitch if it were now, but there are these glitches that are eroding the internet and what it's set up to do. It's stopping us from hearing diverse voices and being able to learn from each other and being able to grow as people because they're not tackling online abuse, harassment, and making sure platforms are safe by design. And Glitch started off as a campaign and evolved. Now we're turning four in April and one year as a charity to try and get other people to understand the role of online abuse in its furthering of and exacerbating of inequality and damaging human rights and eroding integration and unity in society. Like That's now the the main thing that we do, which is let's all work out our ways that we can all help fix this glitch.
0: Yeah. And going back and watching that speech, which and that moment, and, and as you say, got a huge amount of coverage at the time, which both led to positives, but also clearly led to a huge amount of abuse that you then had to deal with and you had to seek out support for. And actually often coming across the fact that there isn't a lot of support, there isn't a lot of process by which to tackle these issues, or at least to support those that, that face them, both online and offline, How kind of telling is your story for the wider picture in that you mentioned there about, you know, you're going to get a blue tick or (laughs) you're going to get all those kinds of benefits of, I guess, having that online viral moment. But what's different to the past is that having that and I put in sort of quotation marks um, sort of platform because, you know, it's a self-created platform. You've got there by something you said that is worth hearing and worth saying. But there isn't an infrastructure that's come with that. You know, it's not like if you would become a journalist and, you know, you work for an organisation. So was that a real realisation moment that actually, yeah, OK, these are all really exciting things. But also, wow, actually, I'm just on my own still. I'm, I'm yeah. just a young councillor.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember James having to draft solidarity messages that the previous mayor of Newham could send in his press release about what had happened to me. People didn't know how to respond. I adore my friends and family, but a lot of them use victim blaming language because they were so like they were so shocked by what happened and obviously love me and want to protect me, but were saying stuff like, Oh, can't you just take the video down or what did you do? Or, you know, like still censoring as if it was my fault for all of this. So all of that that you have to kind of combat when you're the one that is a victim, is so hard. And we see the same parallels, and it's important to talk about, with um, the cuts in, uh, well, the reduction, sorry, in rape convictions and what's happened in the last few weeks with, or months, I should say, with Blessing and Sarah and so many other women who've come to the, who come, who we've seen in, in in mainstream media be sexually assaulted and killed. To just get a horrific accident or sorry, a horrific incident sorry, happens to you And you don't have the privilege of not knowing if your race or gender played a part of it. And then to fight for your justice, you still have to prove that you're worthy of justice. I think both of them can drive somebody insane to prove that you deserve to be centered and not your perpetrator, to prove that what happened to you, the racism was traumatic, I think is as equally hurting as the incident in itself. And I think those compounding things, we are still yet to kind of understand and to stop doing it, like let's just stop doing it, (laughs) which is why at Glitch, we try and provide resources on how to be an active bystander, like what to do when somebody you know, somebody you love, somebody in your workplace, your employee is receiving online abuse. So you don't, Further traumatized but you validate their experience. We do a lot to raise awareness around what online abuse is, because I think a lot of people trivialize it to just words and all oh, snowflake generation, and it means a lot more than that. Online abuse for glitches is an umbrella term to talk about surveillance and threats and violence and hacking and and deep fakes and all sorts of horrific incidences that then have an impact on your physiological psychological and workplace and that's why when i talked at the beginning of my of this of this segment of my rant i said it's important to uh (laughs) look at what's happened in the last few weeks about offline violence because the same characteristics of violence happens you have something like blessing or sarah be violently murdered and killed because of their gender and their race and then yet still the reporting of it either completely erases their race playing a part of it or not even be worthy of being discussed which we've seen or they are centred in a very patriarchal framing of beautiful, innocent, lovely, she was just walking home, and actually you're having to fight for why they deserve justice, not because she was just walking home, but because it's her human right. And we're having that same argument on the online space that women do not deserve to be abused and harassed. It's not part of being a woman in politics or part of journalism or part of being, as we've seen also recently, being in football. So there's so much to still unpack around our language. And it comes back to like that, and because we don't unpack that language, that victim can feel so lonely in so many ways.
0: When it all started, so you set up glitch, you got about to kind of I guess start start trying to make an impact, trying to do something, help others that had been affected by this. How surprised and shocked were you by, I guess, the lack of support and the fact that it wasn't being tackled by governments and organizations. Was this something that you kind of assumed would be the case? Or is it, is it more shocking for you being on the inside? Because I feel like at a low level, many of us that aren't involved in this, this area in some way expect it, but perhaps we'd be shocked by just how threadbare, I guess, the support is.
1: Yeah. I was like, don't, ah! you know, it, made, it dawned on me like there was no like email address to escalate complaints <laughs> that hadn't been. That had been told, like my complaints and my reports, that had been they they had said had not violated terms and conditions. Literally, people calling me the n word, using racial slurs, and calling me a monkey, and all of this stuff. The platforms were coming back to say this was not a violation of their platform, when it it really was. And then I dawned on me like, there's no helpline, there's no one to call, and even the helplines that we have, like the uh, Susie Lampard Trust, I believe, there's National Stalking Helpline. Like even that is being massively um is massively under resourced, and their their helpline and their services is are massively reducing so it was a massive shock it was a huge shock to see like I was talking to my GP about it she couldn't understand the actual incident but she said everything you're describing to me is PTSD and so my GP couldn't support me so all the services you would go to when something has happened didn't understand how to properly support me or other individuals when it came to online abuse. And I think it's because for so long, we have said that it's acceptable. It's part of democracy. It's part of a women's a journey through life from birth to death. And I think because we've challenged that, we challenged that very premise. It's now brought to light, actually, a lot of the deficit you know, backlog of work both government and tech companies need to do and you talked about you know institutions earlier about you know if you were in journalism you'd be supported if you was in a political party you'd be supported but even those institutions don't know how to support we're only starting to see now more resources to support women in journalism when it comes to online abuse but for so long it was only women who were in like um, who who were or journalists who were reporting matters in really dangerous war-torn countries they were being protected but online abuse wasn't seen as a was a thing for the institution to cover only now we're getting increased demand from political parties to provide training for their candidates. Even though the people are in an institution, there's still a lack of understanding around their role as of employers and their duty of care to freelancers, to to staff, to volunteers and so forth.
0: One of the things that that brings us on to and I, what I wanted to ask you about, because we've we've had guests previously talk about young people's mental health on the podcast. Mm. And one of the challenges that researchers have raised is that often when they're talking to policymakers and these are kind of even senior policymakers don't actually understand at a very base level how the <laughs> I was going to say how the Internet works. But, but in some cases, I, you know, that is actually true that, you know, they're speaking about things they really don't use themselves and they don't have any experience of. How much of Glitch's job is actually informing these governments, organisations, even political parties, about how these things work and how they affect, in particular, young people?
1: Yeah, a lot. Every kind kind of advocacy work that we do, there's always a baseline, always a starting point of capacity building, <laughs> capacity building of us because online abuse and trends and patterns and forms of it change every single day. We can't keep up. We can't keep up also with how content moderation changes. So there's a capacity building work for us, but then yeah, when you're engaging a new MP and it was really hard when we had Brexit and then we had uh, COVID and we had no physical parliament, then we had a general election. We had so many things that were making it really difficult to even do that, like relationship building, capacity building, because we would lose an MP the next day or it would, be, we, it would not be seen as that kind of priority conversation. So a lot of our work is getting decision makers in the House of Lords and the House of Commons and tech companies to understand the matter. For tech companies, it's understanding what online gender-based violence is. And understanding that from an intersectional lens, it's getting other tech companies, not just social media platforms, other tech companies who advertise on there, who who have have a lot more sway and lobbying power than we do. It's getting them to understand they have a role. There's also capacity building, James, for consumers. I think a lot of consumers are like, yeah, that online abuse and bullying is terrible they should do something about it and like they don't realize that we can call on them to do something about it as well there's capacity building to exercise to do for everybody and i would call it tech accountability 101 for citizens and, and organizations and i would call it like yeah capacity building to understand how to now regulate tech companies for government and decision makers and then for tech companies it's, it's on gender based violence we having to kind of explain that a new product on the platform how that would be used by a bad actor on the platform to further harm women and, non- and non-binary people. like Because that that insight is missing. I mean, it's missing from the very DNA of these tech companies because there are hardly any women and women of colour. But yeah, there's capacity building in so many senses, which why our work means that we're highly sought after, but it also means that we're exhausted <laughs> because there is so many people that want to kind of understand this space. And then, you know, to not make this even more a complicated conversation, but then you've got that on a backdrop of a charity can help us understand this space, but we don't need to pay a charity, right? This whole conversation around a, woman, a woman's time, picking her brains and all of that is also at play when it comes to trying to do the capacity-building exercise. And we've had to work really hard at like, what's our pricing modeling? What can we give for free in our grant-sponsored workshops and our resources and be funded for? But how do we start, particularly for big corporates, charging them an amount that allows us to properly remunerate and pay our staff and our team well and do our, and do our kind of advocacy and long term work well. But that's also hard because a lot of people just want a lot of advice and time for free.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on that, I mean, as, as activists, I mean, this is going to be an increasing problem uh, is that, you know, activists such as yourself who have gone on to set up organisations because there is a vital need to tackle these issues are then being called on by, it sounds like, by corporates by NGOs, by intergovernmental organisations. But it's, I mean, it sounds like it's really important that we really have a hard think about actually how these organisations are being funded and making sure that they're supported um, and not just, you know, asking their advice and, and not supporting them financially.
1: James, if I was to pull my eyelashes out for every <laughs> single time, somebody would email the info at fix or uh, email or... Um, or, or me directly or DM me after not responding to the email to ask to pick my brains or to meet next week to talk about something because it's really urgent on their time, but no respect for us being a school organization. I would have no eyelashes left. I'd have constant dust and pollen in my eye. And then um, me and my work wife, Gabby Edlin, who's the CEO and founder of Buddy Good Period, actually formed a group around this very topic called More Than Money. We were previously called F You Pay Me, but that was a, a Beyonce lyric and we didn't want Beyonce to sue us. But it's all about tackling this root issue in advocacy, in charity, in philanthropy. Um, and the relationship corporates have with activists who want to use activists to kind of show that they're woke or to show that they're kind of, you know, have a kind of human rights element to their work but without actually reflecting that in their budget line so more than money has got a group of 100 women and non-binary people who share conversations around negotiations who share conversations around how to pitch for funding who to share frustrations around the most disrespectful emails that we've seen that we've seen around being asked to work for free and the issue is people don't seem to understand that by asking a ceo of a charity or funder or founder sorry for their time you're not only asking for their time you're asking for the time they spent learning and becoming expert in that topic and obviously. They're expert in that topic because you're coming to them for it and just calculating your salary your ceo salary for example and then dividing that by an hour somebody wants an hour's time of you that's an hour's time spent of charity money and that's how we just need to start framing the conversation to a lot of people who afford it now this doesn't mean that we now come of make activism and women's rights work you know a market to be able to like by, by services of people. No, I think it's about proper remuneration, the work that makes the world a better place. But the volunteers, the volunteer sector, the charity sector, the women's sector are constantly filling the gaps where state and uh, corporates lack. And that's a, a, a line that I um, learned from one of my good friends, Becca Bunce, who was the co-founder of IC Change, who ran IC Change and this whole thing around the ICO, the International Convention around workplace harassment she ran that all volunteering, and she learnt loads around. Like I basically did a paid job and a half plus working on my own at my own job. So basically, changed legislation, and that wasn't properly remunerated. And uh, I, I just think we need to address this. We, I'm a global goalskeeper for the Gate Foundation and Project Everyone. And they always ask me about the sustainability goals and to speak on gender equality. I'm very, very happy to do it. But I always say that if we want to build back better, if we want to address these sustainability d- development goals, if we want to do anything around improving society. It starts with paying the women that are doing the work to make society a better place. The emotional labor, the activism, the thought leadership, the the threads that's why I I love women being paid for their blogs through Patreon, through um you know newsletter subscriptions because we should start remunerating and thanking people for their coining phrases and their terms and their language because that is what sets up for change right that's why we've got you know we've got human rights legislation and we can't keep expecting the minoritized who are the ones that have been pushed out and doing the work to make the world a better place is to keep doing that for free.
0: There's going to be stuff in the show notes about this, so anyone listening, <laughs> don't, don't don't be just emailing. We were, we were on, we want support as well. So, I, I that brings me on to talk about one aspect amongst many in Glitch's work, and um, we we speak a lot about public health and global health on this podcast, and I guess in particularly in relation to COVID nineteen and how the impact of of online abuse or the impact of of online engagement during this what has been like an incredibly intense moment for a lot of people tense in 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 emotional ways because of the pandemic but also in terms of being in lockdown and how that's affected people's mental health and I know you've spoken about the need to view online abuse as part of a wider public health response definitely and Understanding in that's to those terms. So, yeah, I mean, just tell us a little bit about that and, and I guess how, you, how you came to it or, or, or what you, why you think that's important.
1: Yeah. Look, when I started off Glitch and I call myself an accidental CEO and do delete this if you're not allowed swear words, but I call myself an accidental CEO and a recovering politician and a reformed dickhead. Right. And when I set up Glitch, it was really hard to go from kind of activism to like CEO and that whole formalized bureaucratic structure. I mean, being a, being a counselor and a politician definitely helped me. It, it was a massive learning journey. And even in that learning journey around like what is Glitch's vision and mission and values and all of that and those, those key you know, foundational work. It was like, what is Glitch going to do to like, achieve this huge mission of keeping the online space safe? And we do work through advocacy, awareness and action. And so we deliver programs and resources. We have our long term advocacy plans with both tech company and, and, and governments. And like I said before, we raise awareness of what online abuse is. It's impact from an intersectional lens. And um, I'll tell you the two responses that I got when I finally formed the three pillars. Oh, my gosh, that's a lot to do. You can't do it all. Or what about the perpetrators? What about the other people? So you had two responses where people basically weren't, weren't pleased. But it has always been in my mind and in my heart to really tackle the root causes of online abuse. We need to understand what is driving this. It wasn't for something for Glitch to do at the very beginning, because like I said already, it was like three mini charities in one. But now we're at this point for, the, for the, like the last year and George Floyd's murder really brought it to the forefront around what is the drivers behind people committing abuse? What are the typologies of trolling and, and becoming abusive? Are we all on a spectrum of basically being someone's troll because we've not done the online etiquette and social norms conversation and what actually is good digital, being a good digital citizen? So understanding that we're online, what's our responsibility when we're online? And you know, then the other end of that spectrum is people who are intentionally becoming parts of bot farms and parts of cyber mob style harassment and setting up multiple accounts, et cetera, et cetera. And so they've been having this thinking for a very, very long time. And also, I'll be honest here as well, talking about my leadership and the journey that I had to go through personally around okay, Glitch was birthed out of a very traumatic situation and that's informed my situation and that gives me lived experience which is just as valid as policy experience but I can't be trauma-led so I had to do a lot of work on myself and my trauma to make sure that glitch was sustainable and so all of that was happening that led to we need to not just criminalize online abuse we need clear rules and we couldn't need and the rules are all over the place The, the the laws are all over the place when it comes to online abuse and again women are missing we need clear like legislation so there's a rule of law and a framework but we can't see we can't use legislation to bring about educational change that we still need to be pushing for like an educational conversation around all of our responsibility with the online space just like we did when it came to drink and driving and making sure that everyone understood it was our responsibility to keep the road safe so doing that healing for myself made me realize that we need a public health approach to online abuse. We need to understand what are the social ills that have not been addressed offline and some online that is driving people to this. And having small conversations and you know, with influencers who've bravely spoken about the abuse that they've received and spoken to the perpetrators. Some of them have told me that they've managed to find out, you know, they've asked, why are you trolling me? Why do you hate me? And they've said, I don't hate you. I hate myself. They have been victims and survivors of domestic violence. They are, have got self-esteem issues. They're at home. They're isolated. And this was before the pandemic. So I can't imagine that, the, that being at home has made it better. And our report basically showed that, that online abuse increased during the pandemic in 2020. So if we actually want to fix the glitch and we want to make the online space safe, we need to look at what are the drivers of it. And equally, what happens when someone is abusive? How do we still center the victim? Um, and the survivor of the of the of the event but but also balancing the fact that sending somebody to prison for six months for, for being a troll isn't going to change the platform and isn't going to change the situation so how do we apply principles of like tr- transformative justice and community accountability and rest- yeah restorative justice to the people that have become abusive and i'm i'm even thinking in you know starting off at schools which is which we are applying for funding to do so around the school community someone gets detention or is expelled for being abusive okay but what's that kind of what's that journey to get back into the school community and integrate and understanding the harm that they cause that is sourced up in the way that the victim feels that they've got access to justice And it's going to take us a long time to work out what the public health approach is to online abuse. But I know that it's costing the government millions in terms of court cases and and the impact on our NHS and GP referrals and all sorts of things. So isn't it best that we use that money that we spend on the causes and the impact of online abuse, sorry, on the impact of online abuse on the causes of online abuse?
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's it's, it's, it's so interesting to actually just face the fact that actually this is like many other issues in society that we can approach it with a public health lens and, and, and tackle it in those ways. So just coming on to talk about some of the things that, that governments are doing globally or that glitch is calling on governments to do globally. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll separate them out slightly in that first of all, to ask some of the things that, that glitches is, is calling for, or that yeah. you're working towards. Um, obviously there's, there's lots, lot, countries are approaching it in different ways, and then I guess my second question, which is more about the US, and I, and I particularly want to ask about tech companies, but, but that first bit about the approach and the, uh, the things that Glitch is calling on. Yeah,
1: I, what we're calling for is one digital tech, digital tech tax. Uh, so the moment, the UK tax digital uh, tech companies a percentage, and it's meant to generate 400 million pounds. We are waiting now that it's, it's been a year to see what actually was generated. But already looking at the first quarter, it looks like it generated quite a lot of money from people doing F, uh, freedom of information requests. And we're saying that 10% of that should be ring fenced to efforts to address online abuse, so public health research. Digital citizenship education, online safety training and programs, and we can look at the what's been done in Australia around a really holistic approach to tackling online abuse and what the um, e safety commissioner in Australia provides. We could be doing something easily here with tech companies paying for it, and it's very similar to when we asked the companies in the alcohol industry to pay a tax or a levy or tobacco industry to pay a levy. And that goes to issues to tackle, you know, our welfare state and so forth. I remember learning at school how much of the tax from tobacco industry went to the NHS or something like that. So we see with other companies, I don't see why this is any different for tech companies the second thing in the in the short term is also looking at content moderation like a massive transparency around content moderation the types of abuse that is that is being taken down how quickly and the and the compounding levels of abuse so anytime you know i face abuse online i hardly just get abuse for being a woman i get abuse for being a black woman and yet we don't have reports to talk to take into account multiple and combining um, forms of identity and discrimination. So that's, the sec- that's the second immediate thing. And then the third thing, which is a more of a long term thing, ad- in addition to the public health uh, education approach, is regulation. For so long, we've been like, OK, maybe it's about self-regulating. It's about, you know, data privacy and all of these things. But actually, it's come to the point where companies are marking their own homework and not being honest about it and it's taking way too long and it's having negative impact. and we've seen that with the death of Caroline Flack and we've seen that with loads of celebrities and minoritized communities leaving places like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram because they don't feel safe what we're also seeing is this kind of I feel this race to the bottom when it comes to tech companies doing the very bare minimum when it comes to designing their platforms and actually we need a regulator a tech regulator that'd be independent and have the capacity, because we talked about capacity being an issue at the beginning, having the capacity and the knowledge and the expertise to really understand that the tech companies have a duty of care and making sure that that definition of harm that we're holding tech companies to accountable to includes women and gender based violence and the patterns of abuse that women receive and includes creating platforms that do not exacerbate this in the very first place. So rolling out something like audio content makes it even harder to do content moderation, especially from, with a Gender-based violence lens, so it's already exacerbating another form of online abuse. So that would be what we're calling for in the long term, because it looks like this bill will take about four to five years. But then, as you said, and anyway, what you want to get onto, that's just the UK. You've still got Europe and their acts around the Digital Services Act and wanting to put wanting to regulate tech companies. All countries need to work together with the US to make sure we're singing from the same hymn sheet and calling for the same thing because somebody who's being abused online, there's, there's no way of being sure that your abuser is in the same country as you. And we need that kind of international solidarity and be on the same side when it comes to tech platforms and what we want from them.
0: Yeah, and I mean, that, that second part, that bit about the US and the fact that clearly these companies currently and, and pro- probably going into the future will predominantly be US-based or at least be founded in the US. How big a challenge is that? And is the work being done with this new Biden administration or with regulators there to try and make a change?
1: I think it's too early to call. But in what I really liked from what I read around the Biden-Harris manifesto and policies was this online abuse kind of task force and it being international as well as domestic. And I think that's what we need to hold them to so they can listen to an international community that has been in this space for decades. You know, I, I've not even, it, Glitch has been, is four years old, but you've got organisations like the Association for Progressive Communications who've been around for like 12 years. It's about getting those people in the room who've seen this same thing that we're arguing about on Twitter. They've seen it with SMS. They've seen it with MySpace. You know, they've been seeing it from the very beginning. We need, to, we, we need to hold them to account because to, to do that task force because ultimately it is the US that have the biggest leverage on holding tech companies to account and being clear what free speech is and, and isn't. Europe is, that's where Europe can come in. We've got kind of clearer rules around that. But yeah, there is a lot of work to do by the US to address this. And I can also see it being a thing where it doesn't, it's not, and this is not just a, a problem in the US. I think it's a problem for many, many decision makers. And I say this to somebody, like I said, is a recovering politician. It's not a sexy policy to sell on the doorstep. When you've got somebody who cares about their bins, or who cares about their kids being able to get to a local to their local school and get a, get a placement with their with their older brother, or you know, you've got people who are caring about being evicted from the homes. They don't want to hear, "Oh, we're tackling online bullying." Like I understand. That it's not the sexiest of policies to sell and when you've got somebody who's in their first term wanting to seek re-election I'm not going to hold my breath in this being a massive priority particularly when you've taken over a presidency from somebody who's taken the U.S. back in so many ways.
0: It just leaves me to say Shay Akiwowo thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to the World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Wilman with editing from Rachel War